0: welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi everyone, it's Kate here, and I'm back with episode 35 of The Matterhorn. Um, Today we're looking at the income gap in fictions, or how to layer fiction with economics, the rich-poor gap. Um, And we're going to be talking about several authors today, a couple of filmmakers, and mentioning a few theorists. Um... At the end so I'm I'm not here to present a solution for the rich poor gap um, you know it's obviously a problem in many countries um, and I'm not here to really flesh out all the facts um, of this as well although we will look at a little bit of context just to start thinking about um, you know what, what ways you might want to look at this this idea or this problem and conflict in your in your fiction in the in the work that you're writing, and also in the way that other other author, authors have addressed it? so today, because I'm not um, looking so specifically at economic systems and talking more about these ideas related to The income gap or the rich poor gap. Um, I'm also looking at um, different class structures. So, more just uh, a springboard to get us thinking about these ideas. And it's a more general discussion of areas around economics that um, some might see in a more structured way or society sees in a structured way and a way that can be. even researched or mentioned as different groups um, you know the middle class what is the middle class you know and that's not so easy to find to define, but we're not just looking at the extremes one end or the or the other, but looking at these um, different groups and I think that as as fiction writers it's important to think about what kind of the the expectations or the norms or the stereotypes or the stigmas are about these different kind of group designations within the um cultural and economic context that you are working within in your fiction even if it's a created one right so then you have more freedom in thinking about um what those uh, preconceptions might be and if we think about what those are as categories then you can either work within them um you know, making a character that's sort of almost a cliche of that example of a certain class, for example, in that culture. Or you, you know, might subvert it completely and really change the expectations of the reader, or you might play around and in between and just sort of crush the ideas of um, you know, besides the actual money coming into the household, the differences between the people. So that's just something to think about um, as you write your own fictions. And, you know, it can it can be more than simply critiquing um, the way that society may harm the lower class and the problems that people have if they have less income and why they may have less income and, you know, exploring that and what that means for people. It It's not only finding empathy or understanding on that level it's it's also looking at um sort of the common denominators as well what brings us together um you know as i briefly mentioned and i think for example you know also looking at the problems people born into the upper or rich um classes of society can face so um you know, if I think of the babies at the beginning of Lord Jim at Home by Dina Brooke, which is a re-released novel by Daunt Books, which has been getting a ton of press, and I've read about half of it so far, and it's it's great. I highly recommend it. Um, but this baby born into um, an extremely rich and privileged family is completely neglected and abused in a very similar way as the baby at the beginning of Perfume by Patrick Susskind, the baby who, as we all know, becomes a murderer. And although one is extremely poor and the other is extremely rich, they have a very similar um, experience. And so it is this kind of unifier that, you know, bad things or good things can can happen on either end or within different um, class structures. And how are those stories both different and the same um, is one way we can think about it. So we can look at it as ways of how to tell a story or how it can be a theme of your fiction as well, whether it's the main theme or sort of a, a secondary one, um, maybe even impl- a much more implicit one. And you can also just consider if you do have something you want to say about it, what kind of setting um, and what elements of setting would you would you focus on in your story, whether this is a, a real setting or an imagined one. Um, and on the contrary, maybe if you're not sure you want to hit on anything in this area, maybe you've got other themes you're focusing on and you don't want to distract us from those themes, um, you might choose the setting setting. Um, in order, so that you you maybe don't have to address it, and I don't mean that in a way that you're kind of you would ignore it um, completely, or there's anything negative about that. If there's something else that you want to focus on. So some of the areas I'll talk about today are just experiencing class and context. So rather than just the facts, um, what does an individual's experience or a group's experience um, have to do with the way we write fiction? Looking at uh, the way we can bring together these extremes um, of the different ends of the income scale through fictional conflict or juxtaposition, as well as other literary methods besides juxtaposition, like hyperbole, for example. The way we may read to gain perspectives and empathy, and the way we may write to do that as well. Um, and The way that sometimes this becomes more of a city and the country or urban and pastoral um, kind of dichotomy rather than rich and poor. Um, But I'll do another podcast that focuses more on the urban pastoral. So I'll stay away from most texts that really kind of sometimes the two are merged in some ways. Um, And then I'll look a little bit at Marxist theory today as well. So uh, some of the authors and filmmakers today that I'll mention are Ken Loach, Anne Hoy, Fruit Chan, um, Dickens, Shakespeare, Fitzgerald, Arthur Miller, and Richard Wright. Um, And there are, of course, loads more. And this is where I'd love to see in the comments, um, kind of the connections or examples that you guys have. Um, so I'm still tweaking the podcast. We're in the early days here. I mean, I'm recording this the end of October, and I know you're not listening it, to it until, um, I think, early December. But um, already in recording, part of um, what I'm doing is introducing these ideas now and then sharing something related to the text so that we have the option to go deeper in the future. So Um, My first few episodes are quite long because they're they're kind of big topics, and then there's the possibility to narrow them down more in the future. Um, So, you know, I'd love to hear about which areas you'd like to see a follow-up for. Even though I've got my own ideas, I love to hear, you know, the the direction that would maybe help you the most or interest you the most. And related to that, if you have a particular expertise or interest in this area today or in another one that you listen to, um, whether you're a fiction creator or you're a researcher of some kind. Um, please get in touch, contact me, just reply to one of the Substack posts you get in your email. If you're subscribed, that will reach me directly and we could do a follow-up show together. Um, You know, maybe just a quick soundbite or maybe we do um, a longer, longer conversation. So I'd love to talk to you about that. So the spaces and places section I'll come to at the end of today's podcast is about the MTR, and which is the metro system in Hong Kong, and metros more generally, and consider um, their place in fiction. Um, and you might also want to think about uh, the way that they could tell the story of class and the rich-poor gap specifically. So I think if we just start by this idea of you know, income inequality and the rich-poor gap um, and class, and, you know, they're not always the same thing. And class is more connected to attitudes and cultural norms because it's about categories um, and social structures that are created from a variety of things. And one of those things might be your income level, but it might also be your your wealth in addition to your income levels. So maybe the kind of house you live in or where you grew up or you know this kind of thing, which isn't necessarily um, linked to your income. Um, and even things like the way that you talk or your um, education access to information, things like that. And this, this idea of access to knowledge, for example, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, in an ideal world, we could allow everyone access to to knowledge and we do to some extent um with the internet but of course there are barriers to this as well and you know even with public libraries there are some things that um become um unaccessible in some ways so this is kind of going on a tangent now but if we think about um if we think about the rich poor gap the way you experience your income level and your kind of place in society because of your income level. So what you're able to afford and the experiences you're able to afford, um, as well as the way that people perceive you, it's, it's also connected to this idea of class and the way that it's perceived within that society or that culture. And so, I mean, even in my household now, which is, um, American and British, uh, my husband and I see a lot of differences when we look at this idea of class more um more subjectively. Um and you know he tells me that and you know I see this in a lot of articles as well that in the UK, you know your your ear is tuned to hear um different types of accents related to poshness or or not, right? And so your your kind of class level and status. Where in the US um, maybe that exists, but there's this also this idea that anybody can climb the ladder, um, that social mobility is something that's for everyone. If you're American, you know the American dream. Of course, that's not always true, and sometimes it's a trap um, if we think that way and then we, we reach limits um, because of the means that we have afforded to us, which might be simply how much money is in our bank accounts and what we can afford to do and how far we can afford to get with that. And so there's this, this idea that maybe there's more classist attitudes in the UK um, versus America because of this, but then um, in looking at recent research, that's not, really, that's not really necessarily true. So an article in The Guardian from 2018 um, looked at this a little bit more closely, and it found um, that the UK with all of its class consciousness brings class guilt, which is a good thing and this is a quote, but the agonizing discussions over whether British liberal parents should send their children to public Slash private schools. They're, the public schools in the in the UK are actually private schools, as we say in the US. Doesn't happen here in the US. Parents are aware of structural unfairness, but with a total lack of moral queasiness. So the the line starts to become blurred. And I think when we're thinking about writing fiction, it's important to think about these tensions and the ways that they may they may um, change a character's motivations or expectations of their realities or other people's realities and it could create a really interesting internal conflict or a conflict between different characters that don't see eye to eye about class um and or maybe one of these issues that are connected to class like public and private school for example and then how that conflict and that maybe um the misunderstandings manifest themselves would be interesting Um, an article more recently from the spectator in 2022 is called Americans are as class obsessed as British. So there is the notion that this is kind of, you know, my perception, um, is not the reality that class is absolutely a big thing in America. And it might just depend who you are and where you're from. And, you know, maybe now in 2023 versus when I was living in the U S maybe it is a bigger deal. Um, and social mobility, according to research, is, um, is higher in the UK than in the US. So in other words, more people who are born with, in a lower income family are able to move into middle class um, or upper class in terms of their income level than in the US At this point, even as far back as 1980, Reeve Vanman, in some um, research that I looked at, demonstrated that he... um he saw that the perception of class was the same between these two countries. And he published this in the American Journal of Sociology, so over 40 years ago. And so, you know, why do I highlight these two countries? I just think it's interesting to think also of the context of the, you know, post-revolution in America, you know, the continuation in some way, at least, of the monarchy in the in the UK. Um, you know, what does that have to do with class, perhaps? um what does the way we view immigration have to do with the idea of class because i would i would argue it's linked what do things like um school uniforms um have to do with class what do things like um home ownership these kinds of issues are all related um to those attitudes and it's it's an interesting thing to consider i think in our fictions um even if it's not at the forefront just, you know, what is that What is that social structure like and what sorts of details could you put in there to show either the reality for, for example, your main character or kind of the things that they're up against in society. So in any case, as, as fiction writers, it's, I mean, it's important to consider the research and facts as well as an individual's perceptions and experiences. So, you know, even if we look at... Um, both the the numbers, the income level, for example, um, and the numbers of people within each sort of um, designation, it's, we also want to look at individuals and there's going to be, you know, such a vast array of the way that individuals experience this reality. Um, and for some, it's going to be stronger than others. The attitudes are going to be different. The cultural experiences are going to be different. And so, you know, who are your individuals? Who are your characters? And why do they think what they do? Is it because of life experience? Is it because of religion? Is it, you know, what is it that's kind of shaping their perspective when it comes to um, income inequality? It doesn't mean that just because those statistics show something doesn't mean a particular person won't have Um, the experience. So, you know, even if it is an outlier, you know, they have a story as well. And so, you know, fictions aren't only the stories um, that represent the norm. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not really talking about the capitalistic structures or the neoliberalism and its effect on these societies. It's, it's more about just considering them, you know, and if, if, for example, I had a story set in in Austria, there may be different considerations. You know, when I lived there, I'd pay 48% tax on my teacher salary. Um, so it wasn't just the rich, you know, the middle class as well were paying a very high tax. But then you also have access to universal health care. I had 14 months of paid maternity leave. Um, I had free trash pickup and recycling. And I say that because, well, in Switzerland, we we pay um, uh, per bag of trash and some people pay as much as 40 to 50 bucks a month for recycling pickup. So, I mean, I digress. But the point is, all these these details can be small details um, that can help to shape the reality of your of your people in your story. And, you know, as the world becomes more and more globalized and, um, you know, we're, we're, we tend to read even in schools and at universities, more literature from elsewhere, even if we're not specifically focusing in comparative literature or world literature or something like that, there tends to be more of a focus on you know, reading from elsewhere, which I think is great. And part of that is learning about, you know, the economics are part of the social structure, the political structure, the models that people have to live on, and it affects their daily lives. So I, I see the job as the novelist of, as also looking at how does it, how does this reality affect someone's daily lives and someone's, um, some life and someone's perspectives of the world around them. So when I had a little dig around online looking at, you know, lists of books that show um, income inequality, I really, I couldn't find any good, li- you know, there's tons of these book lists everywhere and I could only find lists of nonfiction. Now, I mean, these, some of these were great lists. They had great books that were talking about, you know, what was going on in different places and, you know, how it affected people, the psyches of individuals, you know, so from different perspectives, psychology as well, for example. But I did find a good list of kids' books, and I'll I'll share that with you. Um, I actually hadn't read any of them, but um, I thought they looked quite fascinating. So we'll get to a few novels in a moment, but if we just start through orienting ourselves with um, filmic fictions, um, I think of the work of Ken Loach in the UK, and that's part of the reason I talked uh, just a little bit about attitudes in, in England and the U.S., and there's a new film by him called The Old Oak which is about immigrants coming to this small town and refugees um specifically to this small town in England and sort of the tensions between people and you know he does use this quasi real genre where um it is a fiction but he really takes us into these intimate spaces and the story moves Um, slowly so we really um, get to experience people more like we do in say a literary fiction in a novel than like a fast-paced film and you know instead of um, a documentary he's able to maybe in some ways go a little bit further with his story and really create an arc that can help the viewer to understand something on a different level so you know he also did this more related to today's topic um, although of course there's overlaps with um, immigrants and the rich poor gap, of course. Um, but let's keep that separate for now because we'll have too many layers going on today. So in I Daniel Blake, I don't know if you saw this film, but it's I mean, it's a beautiful, sad, depressing film of um a man who is trying to, he's on unemployment payments and he's trying to get a job, and he goes to the unemployment office, and he's um, you know, he's got welfare to pay for his apartment and um. It's it's a very bleak story of this man and his life, and he's he's a much older gentleman, and you'd expect that he might be able to um, you know, retire, but he's not able to, he doesn't have enough money. And it just really looks at the danger of this poverty in England, but in a way, you know, I think also possibly better because it's a fiction, because we can go into these really, really intimate moments. You know, the actor is just unbelievable and gives us a lot of emotion related to what he's experiencing. We would see that in a documentary, perhaps, but we might not be able to capture it in the same way. And then there's also always the danger of this kind of poverty porn, like people just looking in on other people's lives. However, it has been done really well. And, you know, there are quite a few documentaries about homelessness, for example, um, And there's one done by a man named Martin Reach, who's now um, a filmmaker in his 20s. He's made four films now, and his first one was at university about um, homelessness, and he was actually homeless himself at 16. So he really had this kind of insider um, awareness and perspective, and he was telling us about the situation um, for some young people in 2015 now homelessness can also be about other things than just um, the rich poor gap and and economics it can be about many other things as well like addiction um uh psychological issues these kinds of things as well um but his film was called where am I sleeping tonight and it's it's quite a beautiful film so I think some of these documentaries as well one of the reasons I mention them documentaries or fictional films if you are writing something, um, even if it's a place you're very familiar with and even that you live in, I think it's really helpful to see these other perspectives of a setting of a place of other people's experiences. Um, Even if they don't become the main character in your story, they can help us to um, create layers of understanding and meaning about that place that we're writing about. So, you know, it's also good to link, look at um, numbers. And so, you know, in my novel, um, which takes place in Hong Kong. A lot of Hong Kong filmmakers are looking at the rich-poor gap in their in their films. I think it's you know it is a big issue in Hong Kong. It, the Hong Kong ranks about the same as the U.S. at seventy-four, just behind the U.S. at seventy-one in terms of income inequality, and it is a big issue. It's not as big as it is in in many other nations statistically, but I think you also have a lot of this juxtaposition. So You have these public housing estates. Um you know, and the the apartments in Hong Kong tend to be very small, even if you are say middle class or middle income level, you would probably have a very small um apartment i did um by by standards, and you know just statistically speaking, you know the average apartment is is the smallest size in Hong Kong of anywhere in the world. So if you have these these tiny places and they're made even tinier and, you know, people living in this close proximity, even if it is provided by the government, at least partially, you know, there's the added difficulty of it being such a small living space, um, you know, in a very hot climate, you know, and even if there's air conditioning, um, you know, then you have to pay for the air conditioning and there's all sorts of issues then related to the amount of space. And because of Hong Kong's density in terms of the living areas, you also have a lot of um, poverty right next to extreme luxury. And I think this is why it's an issue that's so ripe for Hong Kong filmmakers. Um, I think sometimes you've got things right next to each other. And yet at the same time, the poverty becomes invisible in some way or another. And so Fruit Chan, who I mentioned um, in my novel and in the cinematic episode a couple weeks back, makes use of the public housing estate, for example, um, in the same film where he brings us to these luxury apartments on the peak. So very different settings. And we can just, you know, without saying anything explicitly, we can just kind of look at the difference and experience it and understand why the protagonist, although Neither of them are happy um, why they have the experiences they do. Um, and then Anne Hoy does a really beautiful job of this. When she's looking at, I mentioned the new towns in Hong Kong. And I, I do mention her in this chapter um, that I published for you just recently in Causeway Bay. I think it was in the first part of the chapter. But, um, and I say there was this filmmaker, Anne Hoy, decorated over the years who had now turned to a project about a true tragedy in a housing state that had ended with a father killing his twin daughters. Bob was interested in Hong Kong's people, music, fun, food, rich, poor gap, beauty and tragedies all the same. He had a love affair with the city. So I chose in this novel to not make the rich, poor gap my one of my main focuses um, because it wasn't really the story of the person who I created here. But at the same time, I do weave through elements of this through minor characters, through things that we see um, around us. It might be through fashions or through the buildings themselves. And so there's so many different ways that you can um, implicitly show this in a setting. But um, yeah, Anhoy's work, I think, just does a really beautiful job of showing this in Hong Kong. And these new towns, I mean, the whole, the whole town is almost invisible to... Um, to maybe the rich in Hong Kong, also global citizens, people from elsewhere visiting. You know, you're not going to visit Hong Kong and go to one of these new towns which are way out in the new territories, so far from central. Um, you might encounter them if you're doing a hike nearby, something like that. But unless you unless you know somebody who lives there, you're probably not going to go there because they've got you know their grocery stores and things like that. But there's nothing really in the town that you would probably... Um, visit besides the external hiking trails. They are kind of these pop-up places to house people. Um, and there are some good things about them. There's some good things about the communities. there are some good things about the surrounding um, natural landscapes, but they can also be a forgotten space. And in this case, and Hoi talks about a tragic tale, a true one, um, but she makes it into a fiction kind of reimagining what happened. Okay, so let's get into some books and just see um, a few ways that authors bring the rich-poor gap into their fictions and what they're trying to say. So I think a great example of this is in A Tale of Two Cities um, by Charles Dickens. And the chapter of the Monseigneur is is really, it's such a beautiful and tragic um, chapter because it looks at the richness of the aristocracy through a hyperbolic lens um almost humorous in the way it's hyperbolic and then it juxtaposes it with the extreme poverty and um and the way that um a poor child is is not really worth anything at all so um there are two chapters monsignor in town monsignor in the country and so you know as i mentioned at the beginning we might look at the urban pastoral we might come back to these chapters when we were talking about it so i just i just think this is such a ripe example that i want to read you a couple of pages from monsignor in town um and these are just i i love going back to this passage i mean even though it's it's kind of horrific what's happening here i think it's such a great Illustration. um, And it shows, on the one hand, it shows kind of a reason for the revolution in France and the reason that people were over, wanted to overthrow the monarchy and also the system of aristocracy and class in France. Um, But also showing this in a parallel world happening in England at the time where, yes, there was a monarchy, um, it was not being overthrown, and it hasn't been overthrown. And, you know, and and what does that mean? And what is it like today after the French Revolution? So there's just a lot of questions um, within the book. But this is a really great passage. Monseigneur, having eased his four men of their burdens and taken his chocolate, caused the doors of the holiest of holiest to be thrown open and issued forth, Then, what submission, what cringing and fawning, what servility, what abject humiliation, as to bowing down in body and spirit, nothing in that way was left for heaven, which may have been one among other reasons why the worshippers of Monseigneur never troubled it. Bestowing a word of promise here and a smile there, a whisper on one happy slave and a wave of the hand on another, Monseigneur affably passed through his rooms to the remote region of the Circumference of Truth. There Monseigneur turned and came back again, and so in due course of time got himself shut up in his sanctuary by the chocolate sprites and was seen no more. The show being over, the flutter in the air became quite a little storm, and the precious little bells went ringing downstairs. There was soon but one person left of all the crowd, and he, with his hat under his arm and a snuff box in his hand, slowly passed among the mirrors on his way out." I devote you, said this person, stopping at the last door on his way and turning in the direction of the sanctuary, to the devil. With that, he shook the snuff from his fingers as if he had shaken the dust from his feet and quietly walked downstairs. He was a man of about 60, handsomely dressed, haughty in manner, and with a face like a fine mask, a face of a transparent paleness, every feature in it clearly defined, one set expression on it, The nose, beautifully formed otherwise, was very slightly pinched at the top of each nostril. In those two compressions, or dints, the only little change that the face ever showed, resided. They persisted in changing color sometimes, and they would be occasionally dilated and contracted by something like a faint pulsation. Then they gave a look of treachery and cruelty to the whole countenance. Examined with attention, its capacity of helping such a look was to be found in the line of the mouth, and the lines of the orbits of the eyes, being much too horizontal and thin, still in the effect of the face made, it was a handsome face and a remarkable one. Its owner went downstairs into the courtyard, got into his carriage and drove away. Not many people had talked with him at the reception. He had stood in a little space apart, and Monseigneur might have been warmer in this manner in his manner. It appeared under the circumstances rather agreeable to him to see the common people dispersed before his horses and often barely escaping from being run down. His man drove as if he were charging an enemy, and the furious recklessness of the man brought no check into the face or to the lips of the master. The complaint had sometimes made itself audible, even in that deaf city and dumb age, that in the narrow streets without footways, the fierce patrician custom of hard driving, endangered and maimed, the mere vulgar in a barbarous manner. But few cared enough for that to think of it a second time, and in this matter, as in all others, the common wretches were left to get out of their difficulties as they could. With a wild rattle and clatter, and an inhuman abandonment of consideration not easy to be understood in these days, The carriage dashed through the streets and swept round corners, with women screaming before it and men clutching each other and clutching children out of the way. At last, swooping at a street corner by a fountain, one of its wheels came to a sickening little jolt, and there was a loud cry from a number of voices, and the horses reared and plunged. But for the latter inconvenience, the carriage probably would not have stopped. Carriages were often known to drive on and leave their wounded behind, and why not? the frightened valet had got down in a hurry, and there were twenty hands at the horse's bridles. "'What has gone wrong?' said Monsieur, calmly looking out. A tall man in a nightcap had caught up a bundle from among the feet of the horses, and had laid it on the basement of the fountain, and was down in the mud and wet howling over it like a wild animal. "'Pardon, Monsieur the Marquis,' said a ragged and submissive man. "'It is a child.' "'Why does he make that abominable noise? "'Is it his child?' Excuse me, Monsieur the Marquis, it is a pity. Yes. The fountain was a little removed, for the street opened, and there it was, into a space some ten or twelve yards square. As the tall man suddenly got up from the ground and came running at the carriage, Monsieur the Marquis clapped his hand for an instant on his sword hilt. Kilt! shrieked the man in wild desperation, extending both arms at their length above his head and staring at him. Dead! Dead! "'The people closed round and looked at Monsieur the Marquis. "'There was nothing revealed by the many eyes that looked at him "'but watchfulness and eagerness. "'There was no visible menacing or anger. "'Neither did the people say anything after the first cry. "'They had been silent, and they remained so. "'The voice of the submissive man who had spoken "'was flat and tame in its extreme submission. "'Monsieur the Marquis ran his eyes over them all "'as if they had been mere rats come out of their holes. "'He took out his purse.' It is extraordinary to me, said he, that you people cannot take care of yourselves and your children. One or the other of you is forever in the way. How do I know what injury you have done my horses? See? Give him that. He threw out a gold coin for the valet to pick up, and all the heads craned forward that all the eyes might look down at it as it fell. The tall man called out again with a most unearthly cry. Dead. We find that it's Gaspard who is the father, and Defarge who comes to his aid. And this surplus and almost comical opulence is changed into human horror. Notably outside, so outside the home, outside the carriage, to which Monsieur, Monseigneur, I'm sorry, quickly returns on his route to the countryside. So one might see losing a child as the great unifier in some ways, or you might think so. You might think that. any person in society, no matter what their situation, um, would have at least um, an extreme amount of sympathy in this case, if nothing more. Um, and I think of George Saunders' Lincoln at the Bar, Lincoln in the Bardo, for example, showing us um, a really different side of Lincoln and his imagining of what it felt like to lose his son, um, and. So you know Monseigneur's lack of a reaction, simply you know throwing the coin and not even pitying um the people around him, but really blaming them for the death of this child um just makes it so much more horrific, makes him really inhuman in a lot of ways, and you know you you might then start to wonder although he's he's kind of um used as a parable, like you don't really get to, I would say, know him that personally in the story. Uh, You might wonder if he had trauma as a child, like how much love he really had, if he can't understand this basic human sadness on any level. There's also a scene in the novel when the peasants drink wine from the gutters after the wine barrel breaks as if it were the blood of the aristocracy, so again, outside on the streets. So there's something about the setting itself that is connected um, with this rich-poor gap that we see. I think that you know the the narrative, whatever you think of kind of the storyline, the narrative of *Tale of Two Cities*. And I know some people think it's it's you know this kind of silly romance at times. As part of it, I think there are these amazing passages that do so much with language and. Um, even the way that, you know, the eyes of the people watching move as the scene changes and takes place and this exchange of a dead boy for a gold coin, you know, as the people watch the coin as well and what that means. I think there are these really genius things in this book um, that that are worth taking a look at in terms of this, in terms of context. So um, if we just, you know, if we think back to also, when we was looking at multilingualism recently, looking at *Pygmalion*, you can look at um, excerpts from from that about class and language. Um, and in this book that I co-wrote for um, literature teachers and students, um, I did a section on um, class and language as well as it was, it was in a part that also looked at Englishes on knowledge and power. So related to that multilingualism week, but also, um, today in terms of, um, money and power in terms of Marxist theory and what that means in the text. So in that book, I looked at the Porter in Macbeth, and I think similarly, you could look at maybe a character like Yorick and Hamlet, for example. Um, and, you know, Hamlet also questions his role in the monarchy, um, you know, there's pirates in, in Hamlet as well, so I think, you know, you could do a lot with Hamlet too, but if we just stick with Macbeth for a minute, um, the porter um, strays from iambic pentameter, and so, you know, that's also a clue that maybe he's going to tell us something that's quite insightful, in this case also a little bit humorous as well, um, but it may speak of his his class as well. And, Shakespeare is not delivering a person who is less wise because of his class, but simply speaks differently, perhaps more plainly, to reach the audience directly. So we'll just read this short um, passage from Macbeth, and then um, what I've said in the text um, for teachers and students. So there's knocking within enter a porter. This is um, from act one, scene three, uh, sorry, act, act two, scene three, lines one through 20. Here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. Knock, knock. Who's there? The name of beelzebub Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Come in time. Have napkins enough about you. Here you'll sw- sweat for it. Knock, knock. Who's there in the other devil's name? Faith here's an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against either scale, who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. Oh, come on. "'Come in, equivocator. Knock, knock. Who's there? Faith, here's an English tailor. Come hither for stealing out of a French hose. Come in, tailor. Here you may roast your goose. Knock, knock. Never at quiet. What are you? But this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil-porter it no further. I'd thought to have let in some of all professions that go to the primrose way, to the everlasting bonfire. Anon, anon.' The porter opens the door to Macduff and Lennox. "'I pray you, remember the porter.' So the porter likens himself to the gatekeeper of hell, hell gate, as he says. More than determining his own character, this metaphor tells us he is judging the people inside of the castle. Before other nobles understand that Macbeth is evil and stop worshiping him, the porter condemns him for his actions and his character. He also suggests that whoever is at the gate might be seeking entry into hell. The imagined farmer, tailor, and equivocator seek this entry. The farmer and tailor trick their customers into earning more money. The equivocator tries to play God, but of course God knows he is evil. In other words, the porter knows you cannot hide from your moral decisions. They will come and haunt you. The porter uses clever plays of language, but in a low register, he speaks the truth through his vernacular. By the end of his imaginative speech, he has already had enough of hell's bonfire and the people who might enter it. He is not interested in engaging with these types of people. However, the continued knocking in stage directions and in his own speech register a kind of doom they will all face. The porter concludes by saying, I pray you remember the porter. This might mean to leave him a tip to allow him a meager wage for his work and perhaps for his wit, but it also tells the audience that what he is saying might be important. Rather than just a strange character on the stage, he is like truth chiming in on a diseased group of people. As a gatekeeper, he sees much of the evil ways of the nobles. The low register of his language might address the audience directly without any distracting poetic style. The porter's colloquial language that includes the sexual connotations, the stealing out of French hose, maybe an obscene reference to a prostitute, a goose is also a word for prostitute, is emphasized even more with his lack of iambic pentameter. The lack of rhythm of his language makes it stand out and tells us he is speaking in a different register. But Shakespeare does not value this type of language less, By giving us a sharp window of truth through the Porter's streetwise tongue, he shows us the value in different Englishes. So in that book, I also um, talk about, you know, using Marxist theory in a classroom to help us see the different layers of a text. And I've talked about this before, but just in brief, um, you know, we're in this kind of post-theory era. But although that has kind of been seen by some to see just abandoning um, theory, In reality, the way that most researchers look at this is by bringing multiple theories together. But of course, if we're going to do that, we need to understand each on their own, first of all. And so if you just want to say what you want to say without the constraints of a theory, you might still learn about the different um, layers, which is kind of like what we're doing here um, to then understand them more deeply. So with Marxist theory, you might reduce it to who has the money in a text, who has the power. And how does it change over the course of the text structure? Um, a text that's really good to look at in this is The Crucible. Um, there's, um, you know, some of the, we've got on the one hand, um, there's a woman in the ditch who lives in the ditch, basically, who is accused of being a witch, and it's easy for people to peg her. Um, as a witch because she doesn't really have um, a leg to stand on so to speak there's the Paris the reverend his golden candlesticks are discussed several times you know he's taking money from the church what does this mean he's kind of put on this pedestal in terms of money and power and then there's more power given to the young women who accuse people in the community and the parish of being witches um such as the maid Mary Warren and there's kind of a um a bit of comic relief in a scene with Mary Warren and Proctor um, when she accuses Elizabeth Proctor of witchcraft and then um, they kind of have a scuffle about her um, her position in the household and she kind of just marches off to bed like a child. It's motivation and suggestion as the reason for some of the cries of witch at the time of the real Salem witch trials, um, but... Not only, it's just one of the layers. And it's really interesting to track the characters and the way that their money and power shift over the course of the play. Um, the Great Gatsby is another one that's great to do this with. Um, you know, it's kind of the story of the American dream and not. Um, and, you know, Buzz Lerman's adaptation came just following the 2008 financial cri- cra- crisis. Sorry. So he, by using uh, music, also contemporary music, He's really telling us explicitly, hey, I'm also talking about today when we're looking at all this stuff happening um, with um, Gatsby al way back then. And Fitzgerald really makes use of the the setting here. Um, He has these kind of three places, West Egg, Egg, East Egg, and the Valley of Ashes. And these different places represent um, different social classes, um, he also talks about Gatsby, you know, making all his money as a way to try to impress Daisy and gain her love. Um, of course, it all backfires. Um, but there's a lot going on here in terms of the rich-poor gap, specifically, um, because the the group um, visits the Valley of Ashes to catch up with um, to get to get Myrtle to bring her to this apartment um, in New York, and. When we're in the Valley of Ashes, everything is, is desolate, as Fitzgerald describes it. Um, it's a place where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke. And finally, with a transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air, occasionally a line of gray cars crawls along in an invisible track. It's this sort of urban sprawl, this this space that perhaps is also necessary to allow somebody like Gatsby to have his mansion um, alongside Nick who has the more modest home um, in West Egg. So in the New York apartment though that they all go to in the middle of the city, then the classes mix. So it becomes this kind of experimental space where the classes come together and fitzgerald's almost asking the question you know if we just take away these these barriers and everybody's mixing in this space you know what is gonna what is going to to happen but it's it's a a tragic book as i'm sure most of you know if you have if you have read it and um it really talks about the dangers of looking for riches as well you know gatsby really becomes rich to find daisy and you know that doesn't work so what is he left with he's left with you know, isolation, um, and sadness and, you know, Daisy's rich, but she's not happy either. So mostly people aren't happy in this book. Um, and so the, but the rich poor gap is part of this problem and you don't really see, um, people in the middle. I guess you could argue that Nick is somewhere in the middle. Um, but he's kind of playing on, um, he's playing on the side of luxury, right? So he's trying to mingle with luxury and, um, see where that gets him. There's another article I'll share with you called the sexual boundaries of race and class and working class novels, marrying up and living it down, marrying down and living it up. So you might want to think about, um, sex and marriage, um, in terms of these income divides and what that means for people in different contexts. Um, in that article by Carolyn Whitson, she makes use of black boy by Richard Wright in a really interesting, way um and looking at kind of economic objects um with sex as a meaning of changing class status so that's interesting the white tiger by Aravandiga is another interesting one looking at the caste system in india which was which has been illegal since 1950 but it still um exists but we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks when we look at nothingness um which is a central motif to that to that text and a really beautiful text. If you want to go further into Marxist theory in literature and the arts I'd recommend you start with um, Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction um, or possibly uh, Frederick Jameson's work. There's Marxism informed 20th century dialectical theories of literature um, which is not just his work but he's also bringing together other people's work. He does a lot with cognitive mapping and linking the arts to economic contexts, thereby making them political, um, and also his uh, political unconscious. So I'll link those in for you in the the notes for today. And then Terry Eagleton, um, a more contemporary theorist, um, talking about Marxism and literary criticism. He says, for example, art then is for Marxism part of the superstructure of society, It is, with qualifications we shall make later, part of society's ideology, an element in that complex structure of social perception which ensures that the situation in which one social class has power over the others is either seen by most members of the society as natural or not seen at all, in other words, invisible. So to understand literature then means understanding the total social process of which it is a part. And so I would argue then to to create literature – um, you know, we can never have a full understanding. But by trying to understand the the social structures of which it is a part can help us make something um, that's maybe more authentic, even if it is a fiction, paradoxically. Yeah. So... This kind of theory can help us to see these layers. And I'd be happy to go into one of those texts more in a future episode if you are interested in it. You just let me know. Um, But on Thursday, I'm going to come back with the let's do this exploration of today's topic with some ideas about how you can um, use this in your own writing. Spaces and places this is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. Okay so today I'm looking at the MTR which is the mass transit railway in Hong Kong as well as metros more in general um, as a kind of space within the um, the bigger city. Usually these are much bigger globalized cities that have underground metros. Um, although not only, um, just because it's such an expensive and large undertaking by a city to actually install these. There needs to be um, a reason to to spend so much time and effort on it. And so the Hong Kong MTR was established in 1975 and it's often seen as one of the best in the world. Um, and their company actually ran the london overground for a short time to make it more efficient um it runs and consults with several metros in china as well as beijing um in melbourne and in stockholm so it's made quite a name for itself um because it had i guess in hong kong such a such a dense population to work with as well as um an unusual um geography you know i had to go um under the harbor for example and it shows to go under the harbor instead of over you know that was a choice um and move to uh different different areas on the island try to consider how to move people to the upper spaces of hong kong central um that are that are up a hill, and so how do we then connect those you know through through huge um, systems of elevators and things like this? And um, I was very aware of a lot of the growth of this MTR back in the earlier um, 2010s because where I was living was toward the western side of Central, um, which I'll come back to in a second. And that area where the expansion was, this is near the University of Hong Kong um, Poon, Kennedy Town. Um, they were doing all this blasting underground. And I mean, you just had to have full trust that these people knew what they were doing because the whole ground would shake, the apartment would shake, um, they would warn you when these blastings were supposed to be. Um, but I remember one night in the middle of the night waking up and hearing the blasting and even the um like the drilling underground i mean it must have been quite far away but underground somewhere and um and we were kind of worried about it and our neighbors were as well and so somebody called the police and it was sort of a joke because they just came outside of our apartments and they said oh we don't see any construction here um so it must be fine so i mean i guess they were you know money talks in hong kong for sure and um you know they just had to get their Project done, which is fine, but we were just worried that our um, ceilings would fall down. And luckily, they didn't. So, yeah, the MTR is continuing to expand. It's a huge metro system and it's part of a whole network of public transport in Hong Kong. The ferries, the double decker buses, the mini buses, the trams, which I really, in this story that I'm writing, I really put in um, contrast to the metro as these kind of dinosaur trains of the city. Um, And I have like a a couple of later scenes on the tram and the way that it really seems to slow down time and take us out of that globalized world back into a really personal and slowed down experience. So, I mean, I love the trams in Hong Kong, but I also love the metros. They are the fastest way to get around. They're so efficient. They're so clean. Um, and they're just very orderly. So, I mean, a few years ago during the protests, there was some violence on the metros. And I know that was a time when then, um, people didn't really feel safe on the metros, which seems so strange to me because in a lot of ways, you know, those metros just seemed like completely safe, clean, orderly, as I said. And it's just wild to see it turned on its head, um, because of the clashes between, protesters and the police who entered the the metro stations. So I've mentioned the Hong Kong scholar, cultural scholar Akbar Abbas before. Um, And in a recent interview, he talked a little bit about the Western District and he said, While Abbas is bound to know national identity, his ties to Western District do run deep. Quote, this area before the MTR came here in 2014 was a little bit different from other places in Hong Kong, he says. It still has the sort of small town feel to it in the sense that you buy things from the market and from the town and from the shops that you know. And you have a real genuine conversation with them, which is something you don't find in big cities. And Hong Kong is a big city, so I would say that it's that's not the only place that that would happen. Um, but because that area he's describing is still on Central Island, it's quite unusual in that way. I mean, there are other um, sort of fishing villages like that, but maybe they're a bit smaller. Um, so maybe that's why he distinguishes the Western District. But there is that question of you know bringing um, a metro or a train to an area well it is super convenient and it helps people who either choose not to have cars for ethical reasons um or who can't afford to have cars um and i mean in hong kong most people don't have cars anyway but even in other places um you know it allows them access to um the rest of the city very cheaply um very efficiently and it does that but it also changes sometimes the shape of the place where Um, the metro is because then of course more people can live there and commute to work for example Um, it also brings people from other parts of the city to that space more quickly and um, probably more consistently so You know, it's it's something that places consider. It's not just about the efficiency of moving people around. It changes the whole shape of it. And I know that like Sai Kung in Hong Kong, for example, has resisted having the metro um, move up there because it is this kind of it's a bigger fishing village where a lot of both Hong Kongers and sort of expats. um, There's problem with that word, but people who don't consider themselves to be there forever from the international community. um, There are quite a lot of people living up there who use buses and bicycles and other things to get around so you know you might consider that in different settings and uh it's it's an interesting um way to think about hong kong is just the whole fast-paced um aspect of it you know it's like hyper capitalism things are always moving um there are also, like, so many lights, so much noise, and there's an interesting reflection on Abbas's work from Susan Ingram, who's a great uh, Hong Kong researcher as well, and Marcus Reisenleitner, and they say, One never really arrives, but rather is whisked onwards in Hong Kong, funneled through spaces of dislocation into the bright, shiny compartment of an airport express or light rail transit. Um, These are the MTR and KCR. Remaining in a state of suspension, looking down on the rabbit warren of streets or up at the bamboo-like beehives of housing estates, endless containment terminals, and the hulking rusted carcasses of factories. One looks in vain for landmarks of orientation outside. So it really does feel this way. I mean, there are many layers of the city, and until you feel comfortable moving through them at high speeds, it can feel like you're being forced through some kind of weird time warp. And, you know, most people... um, from elsewhere unless you're coming from China would arrive um, at the airport and then you have this super fast airport express that brings you um, all the way to central and oh by the way a little shout out to Gina Wong who is a reader and listener and she does the voice on the airport express um, so in all the languages so hello but yeah the airport express when you're when you're on it it's I mean it's wonderfully comfortable fast efficient it's lovely um, and for part of the time, you can see out the window, and then you're just suddenly underground. And, you know, like anytime you're underground, you're disoriented. But the movements are so fast, and the space that you come out of at the Airport Express, the, the system of tunnels getting you to your taxi or your bus, um, however you're going to get to your next place, are also in this whole sort of matrix of um, roads and systems that just seem really futuristic, I would say. And after a few years of living there, I started to, when I came um, home to Hong Kong after maybe like a long trip back to the States, for example, or just wherever I was, it always felt just like really comfortable and home-like when I got to these um, the places on the Airport Express and maybe into a taxi afterwards. But it takes you some time to start to feel um, comfortable in that, in that kind of place. So um, I think it can be, um, you know, interesting to consider the ways that in the in the metro, a lot of people are brought together. um, And, you know, these stories are usually silent. Usually people on the metro are not talking to each other unless they know each other. Yet they're sitting side by side and maybe having, you know, either completely different thoughts inside their head or they're looking at something on their phones or reading something or listening to something. And so all these different stories are happening simultaneously. And in the same way, you might have, um, you know, many different um, income levels or types of um, types of um, people who have different experience with the economy on the metro for different reasons. Right. So you might consider that in relation to today's topic. Um, one book that I really love that explores um the subways is Murakami's Underground. And it's a nonfiction book. Um, he's looking at the the terrorist attacks on the underground and he's showing the identities of people who are all juxtaposed on the on the subway in contrast to um to the the group, Alm um, Shinrikyo, the group who had orchestrated the attacks, which had gotten actually a lot of press and people had been investigating this group and why they acted the way they did and why people join it. And Murakami felt sort of disgusted by that and just wanted to. I mean, he did agree that that was something that needed to be figured out and he, he interweaves his commentary through the book, but he also wanted to share the stories of people who were actually on the subways and how it affected them. Um, So that's, that's a great book that I'd recommend. Um, And I think, you know, the more you you look at these subways and these metros, they're not really um these kind of non-places. Like there's a lot of interesting writing, discourse about non-places, like usually airports we talk about, but other places too. And sometimes the subways are described this way. But I think really if you look around, um, like there's so much life on a metro and the culture of the metro is really different from city to city. You know, in Hong Kong it's um, you know, everything's so efficient on time frequently you see a lot of People dressed in business clothes or going out, or um, students, whatever it might be, all um, coming onto the train in a very orderly fashion. It's very clean, it's very fast. Um, There's also from Hong Kongers, I often heard pride in this distinction from the mainland. And it's true if you go on the metro in Beijing, I mean, you kind of get at least my experience there, it was kind of shoved into it. And it was almost frightening. Could you get off of the train um, when you had to? And you know, if there was an emergency, forget about it. It was just so crowded. It was kind of scary. Um, but it, in Hong Kong, there are just so many trains coming through that although it can get crowded, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. But you do see a lot of people kind of plugged in, um, maybe with their eyes closed, because a lot of people in Hong Kong like work too hard or too late, or people are always trying to be efficient with their time. So they're trying to get something done, whether it's sleep or reading or, you know, getting getting something done maybe on their phone as well. Um, if you think of different cities, you know, maybe where you live, if there's a metro, what is the culture like there? You know, I notice um, in Paris still now, but especially even, say, like 10 years ago, just in contrast, so many people reading um, actual books still, um, which you don't see. On the Hong Kong Metro, so much um, it's much more digital. People might be reading a book, but in a different format. And you see that you also um, you also sometimes hear some music. Um, it's uh, it's also the different stations have um, art in them often at times, which you may have noticed in films like In Amelie or Daniel Metro, the Last Metro. And there's a really great um, short film from Paris Je T'aime called Tuileries. Um, with Steve Buscemi and I've linked it there for you. So you can, you can check that out. Um, You know, New York has a very different feel. People sit differently in New York than they do in Paris. They take up more space. Um, That's, you know, there's kind of this difference with space in America. So what does that look like on the subway? Um, The Wayne Wang films that I've talked about before, um, Smoke and Blue in the Face, they have this kind of overground train to Brooklyn, which snakes through the city. Um, And it seems to almost be a character itself, um, like connecting people, um, creating like a haven kind of for them to move through um, the labyrinth of the city, right? And there's also this really interesting film, Subway Stories Tales from the Underground in New York, um, which is like dramatized tales of real stories on the New York subway, which I'll link there for you too. Um, you know, the London metro always feels quite small and very warm. Um, that maybe impacts the way that people interact. It also seems always really quiet to me. And maybe it's the carpeting on the on the chairs. I'm not sure. Um, in Vienna, it always felt rather grumpy. Sorry, no offense to the Viennese. I really love Vienna. It's such a beautiful place. But the metro just had a really grumpy vibe most of the time. And I was on it quite a lot. And when I lived in Milan, I saw a lot of sunglasses on the metro for different reasons. So anyway, maybe think about what the culture is on that metro and how it's a way to juxtapose different people, um, why that might um, tell a story differently. Maybe if it's just somebody's internal monologue as they're they're, um, taking different things in on the metro, it might give you a space to have that character kind of retreat or... Um, just kind of flow through the city very quickly for some reason. And I'd love to hear your other ideas about um, metros in the comments. I'm sure you know some of you have had some interesting experiences or done some writing that um, that features the metro. So we'd love to hear that. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative. And let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today.